Hey, everybody. I'm glad to be here. I hope you're glad to be here. Welcome. Um, so typically, in this church, we uh, preach through books of the Bible. And uh, in the summer, what we've done is we kind of take a pause and we look at just little kind of things as people travel. And ordinarily, we've done Psalms. And this summer, as I'm sure you're all well aware, we are knee-deep into a series on our Anabaptist core convictions. And so as I've said every week, and I'll say again as we begin our time tonight, that Anabaptism is not a denomination. It's a flavor of theology. And it's a flavor that has given birth to denominations. And it's a flavor that after 11 years in this church, we kind of looked up and realized, well, hey, this kind of is the flavor of what Providence Community Church so, um, so what we've been doing is we've looking at these. We've been looking at these core convictions. I hope you have a handout uh, with seven of them there in front of you. Um, we're going to be referring to that here in just a little bit. And where we've been, if you'll recall, is the first week. It all starts. It all starts with this idea that we are called to not just worship Jesus but follow Jesus. Jesus is to be followed, not just worshipped at a distance. Not just say, hey, you're neat and nice and pretty, stay over there. But he is someone that we follow closely because he's alive and he is willing to teach us and lead us and guide us. So that's where it all starts. Then if we're following Jesus, when we look to the word of God, which tells us about Jesus, that tells us what he's like in the Gospels and the Old Testament is a beautiful unveiling of God's plan and God's people that points to Jesus. And everything that follows in the New Testament looks back and references Jesus. So in our Anabaptist core conviction, we are Jesus-centered Bible readers. We start and end with Jesus. We love the Old Testament. We love all of the New Testament. We love God's Word, the Bible. But it all finds its key and its linchpin and its turning point right there with Jesus, the person of Jesus, whom we follow. When we follow Jesus, we find that it causes us to be distinct from the world around us. And that's what we talked about last week. We talked about how the world around us in the West has been marked by this uh, thing called Christendom, this culture, this religious culture rooted in the Word of God, in the people of God, the story of God, the rhythm of God. All of these things have dominated Western culture since 300, about 315 uh, A.D., And we are just now emerging out of the haze in which everyone was pretty well assumed to be Christian. Okay, Here in the South, what we talked about in the Bible Belt, it still looks and feels and seems quite a bit like we're still wrapped up in Christendom. And to a large extent, that's true, especially as we look this weekend, this holiday weekend at the 4th of July, there's still this sense that this is God's country, in God we trust, and the church must be the militant and triumphant type of government and type of country that's still kind of wedded together with the nation. And when we follow Jesus, we see that really, well, he's for the whole nations, okay? He's about adopting kids, men, women from India and Uganda and Africa, and really the ultimate goal for God's Hope for the nations is that we would go as a church and baptize and teach the nations, the people that make up those nations. That's our mission. So that's where we've been. 
And where we're going to be tonight really does have a lot to do with that book that we read uh, to the kiddos earlier. It has to do really at the nuts and bolts level with service. And so at the beginning of this week, uh, Pastor Bud, Pastor Drew, and I, we spent a day uh, as we want to do every month. Uh, we call it an EPC, an Extended Personal Communion. If you've been around, you've probably heard about how the pastors of your church uh, go for a time of solitude and stillness and prayer to connect with the Lord, to seek out next steps, and just to, man, just unplug and disengage and just to be and rest with Jesus. So that's what we did on Tuesday, and we did that at a Catholic retreat center. We did it here in the area, and it was a beautiful time uh, for us just to talk together and to pray together and then to be alone um, and then to come back and talk about what God is up to. And what he was up to in my heart and life is something I think he started several months ago. And when you are basically working from home like I do with a two-year-old and a three-month-old, it's hard to come by some quiet. Let's just be real. And so I've found part of my habits and part of my rhythms is to sit in big, beautiful churches. And uh, something shifted, and it was really something that God worked on me with this past Tuesday at a Catholic retreat center, in which I looked at the cross. And of course, in this tradition and the Episcopal tradition and others, the cross is not just a cross, the cross is a crucifix. And the crucifix is one in which Jesus is shown giving his life, the ultimate sacrifice. And to a guy who spent the large part of his life not being around crucifixes, not wearing them on his neck, it was kind of an uneasy thing for me, you know? It's kind of an uneasy thing for a lot of the culture that's emerging from Christendom, because I recall talking to people in urban cities like Montreal and elsewhere in Europe uh, where, where they say, you're, you're a Christian, you're from a church, what's up with that gloomy dude on a cross in all of your churches, these are conversations. And for me, it was an uneasy thing sometimes for the crucifix. Because I know that Jesus, of course, was raised from the dead and all this, but, but something shifted subtly. That uneasiness subsided. And it subsided several months ago, and it was really brought to the forefront this Tuesday, and that was this. And when I look at the cross, as we should always see in the cross, is not a gloomy Savior, but a Savior who is self-sacrificial, who has poured it all out, and he's poured it all out for the whole world. Amen. He has left it all. He took it all, and he left it all. And I was gripped this past Tuesday looking at this Jesus on the cross and actually seeing power in that, seeing power when he emptied himself. And all of a sudden, these things are coming alive when he says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. And I begin to see that when he's in the Last Supper with his homies, his brothers, and he's ate with them, he's taught them, he's healed with them, they've seen these power of Jesus. Really, it's a power that was always giving, always giving. And the last night, as we see in John 13, we see a, a, a symbol where Jesus enacts that kind of service. Before the cross, where he is their master, he is their teacher, he is their leader, he is their Lord, and yet as they're bickering, 
about who's going to be first in the kingdom. Who gets to sit at the right hand? We've talked about in the, our series in the Gospel of Mark. Who's going to take over the reins if Jesus is really right that he's going to get killed? I just imagine Jesus smiling subtly and he spends his last night taking off his outer robe, wrapping it around his waist, and kneeling down before these men who have spent the last several years learning from their esteemed master, teacher, and Lord. And all of a sudden, here he is, humbling himself at their dirty feet. And all of a sudden, all those questions about power, all those questions about status, all those questions about wealth, I was sitting there Tuesday, I was looking at the cross, I was thinking about power, status, and wealth, what we're going to talk about tonight, and what I see is a servant king, a king unlike any other kingdom has ever known. Amen. And this is powerful, and it's powerful because where is power when Jesus is kneeling down? Where is status in a culture in which base Slaves and servants, not esteemed men. Where is status when he's nailed down to the cross and when he's kneeled down in front of them? Where is it? Where is wealth when Jesus says, foxes have holes, but man, I ain't got a place to lay my head. You want to still come? And it makes sense then of that Philippians 2 passage where he left it all. He emptied himself. He poured it out became obedient even to death on a cross. And I see this. I look at this Jesus. There's no gloom here. And more than that, there is no sense of the worldly kind of power there. Because he didn't come down from that cross. He was buried. He was laid to rest. And God reveals his power by raising him up. And then Jesus continues to say, but remember, I came to serve. Remember, all authority has been given to me on heaven and earth, but go and love your neighbor as yourself. And all of this is just swirling around. And I'm just seeing this Savior who poured it all out, who gave it all to the people who deserved it the least. And this is powerful. And so tonight we're going to talk about this idea of, I guess I've just thought about this indiscriminate service. Because when Jesus kneels down to wash the feet, he even washes the feet of the man who will betray him within minutes from that encounter. But he loved his neighbor. And we see constantly Jesus showing, not just teaching, but showing. And this idea that indiscriminate service, that when we're called to bless the poor, when we're called to bless the least, when we're called to adopt from India, when we're called to do all of these things, our default position would always be service and power. And so we've been talking about these Anabaptists and what we can learn from them. And we've talked about some history. And these are people who served and gave even in spite of persecution and suffering. But it wasn't always rosy. And so in some part of the Anabaptist story, we've talked about the very beginnings. We've talked about how they've been baptized to pledge their allegiance to Jesus in death and in life. But a lot of times if we lose sight 
of this vision of Jesus, we can look just as powerful, just as wealthy, just as nasty as all the kingdoms that are following a different Lord. And this is even what happened with some of the Anabaptists. You see, in 1530, what happened after our three amigos that we talked about the first week, after Anabaptism has begun to spread, even after those three men die, by 1530, it's spreading out of Switzerland and the Swiss brethren, which is what they've talked about, what we talked about before, it's spreading into places like Germany and it's spreading into places like the Netherlands. And it came to the Netherlands when a guy named, listen to this name, gosh, we've heard some wild names. You ready for this name? Melchior. Melchior. Melchior Hoffman comes and he comes in a town with a lot of poor and powerless and oppressed people. And he preaches and he teaches and he prophesies and he talks about all these good things. And he's baptizing people. And by 1930, thousands of people would identify as rebaptizers and Anabaptists. And he gets a word that New Jerusalem is going to come. And he gets a word that it's going to come not through serving but through power, through force. And he himself believed in the peaceful way that these Anabaptists had taken following Jesus, not picking up the sword. So he surrenders himself to the authorities as more and more followers are coming to him and he says, New Jerusalem is going to come and it's going to come after I give myself to be arrested. And God is going to come, boom, and New Jerusalem is going to come and it's going to descend in this little town in Germany. So what happens then is he goes and gives himself over to be arrested and he stays the next 10 years and he dies. But somebody else takes up the task to usher in the kingdom, not through service, but he gets it in his mind he's going to do it through force. His name was Jan Mathis and he takes over and by 1534, they're convinced that New Jerusalem is going to come to this town in Germany called Munster. And they're convinced that all these thousands of Anabaptists, as the word has spread, as they've been following Jesus and trying to, trying to do this, and in the midst of this sweeping reformation that we've been talking about in the West, he convinces thousands of Anabaptists to come to this one town, Munster. And then what happens is they begin to take over the electorate, the councils that run the town. They begin to kick people out. They begin to institute violent law, an extreme law. And then what happens is troops come from Germany and they surround the town and they try to starve them out. Because these people are convinced that they're bringing God's kingdom and they're bringing it in such a way that doesn't look anything like the servant king. It was a massive debacle. These Anabaptists that had, by this point, committed to following Jesus and to serving and to, to baptizing and to teaching and all this, they lose sight of their mission because they lost sight of Jesus and they're eating each other and they're killing each other and they're starving and they're at war with these other people. And it is a massive debacle. And so what happens is the black sheep of Anabaptists that descended on Munster that were doing all these things, the drunken uncle, if you will, of the family, what happens is they get lobbed in with all the other Anabaptists who have spread throughout Switzerland, throughout Netherlands, throughout Germany, and all of a sudden the persecution that had existed to this point just ramped up and exploded exponentially. And it all happened because we can lose sight of this vision of Jesus. 
and his mission to serve. And so when Jesus, in the context, if you look at Matthew 20, of service, will he turn to Matthew 20 real quick? This isn't where we're going to camp out all night. But what happens when the church loses sight of this vision of Jesus and his mission? Well, Jesus tells us in Matthew 20, beginning verse 24, when all these people, like we're saying, all his disciples are talking, a couple of his disciples are talking about sitting in his left and right. And we talked about it in the Gospel of Mark. But here in Matthew 20, 24, the other ten heard about this. They're indignant with the two brothers, and Jesus called them together, and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles, all these other kings, lorded over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. And then, to echo what we said earlier, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. We must never lose sight, even in the stream of faith in which we found ourselves in, we must never lose sight of the vision of the servant king, and we must serve and do likewise, which leads us to our fourth conviction. We're called to serve the least indiscriminately, no matter what. But the problem happens when we see a frequent association of the church with status, wealth, and force. The frequent association of the church with status, trying to elevate ourselves over the other people, trying to take over, trying to uh, put ourselves up above, and what that looks like for us may be a default in which judges a person in a snap way. Things like, I'm better than this person, I deserve things, I, all this. This frequent association of the church with status, this moral superiority, the church with wealth, this idea of the kingdom of the world that we must acquire, that we must do all this in the name of Jesus, and force is inappropriate for followers of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus tells us this looks everything like the kingdoms of the world, but not like my kingdom. It's inappropriate for followers of Jesus, and it damages our witness. And so what all of these have in common is they don't look like God's kingdom. They look like the kingdoms of this world. And even more than that, hear this. What all of them have in common is a self-exaltation at the cost of the other person. What, what our church, when we get bent on status, wealth, power. When we have these instances like what happened in Munster, even with the peaceful Anabaptists who've committed to follow Jesus and do all this and to not have the sword, what happens when we lose sight of this is we begin to place ourselves over. It's the self-exaltation at the cost of other. It says, how can I use you? How can I jockey in my mind for position over you? How can I get more rather than give more? Because if I get more, that means I'm satisfied, and you might not be. When we force our way, when the church forces its way, it doesn't look like the Savior who comes and washes feet. Because Jesus, in his love, and when we get this vision of Jesus, the antidote to all this is a vision of Jesus that is self-sacrificial. 
not self-exalting, self-sacrificial, and it is always at cost of himself. It's Brother Juniper, like we read, who freezes because he gave his coat. Where would he get such an idea like that? Well, if you got two coats, you see your brother, problem solved. Jesus was always sacrificing, self-sacrificing to the cost of himself. It cost him his very life. This is what we see when we have this vision of Jesus. The antidote to this kind of problem, when we start to look like the kingdom of the world, when this church starts to be swept into the kingdom of consumerism, swept into the kingdom of status, swept into the kingdom of force, we begin to look much more like, Jesus says, the other kings that want to exert power over people. But we must look to Jesus who washes the feet and tells us to be servant to all. Our default must be service. Our default must be love my neighbor at cost to myself. When I see my neighbor, how do I bless my neighbor? And this is our default And again, I'm sitting on Tuesday and I'm thinking of Jesus, looking at Jesus, and I'm thinking about this idea of service and I'm thinking about two men. I'm thinking about Amy's uncle Jack, who we went to a funeral last Saturday before we came here. And Uncle Jack was 80 years old and Uncle Jack had struggled with Alzheimer's and it had just crippled him and just, just, it took his life. But when we look at Jack, we were able to celebrate because we knew that Jack had a sense of this Jesus. And Jack helped start through Carter Blood Drive the blood drives that were remote, the gift of life drives, and this humble, gentle, 80-year-old man throughout the course of his life gave 68 gallons of blood. 68 gallons. Could we line up a bunch of milk jugs up here? How much blood is in the human body at any given point? Five. This is 68. He gave. He helped found a wing of a hospital in Dallas because his daughter suffered from scoliosis and he needed a place to take his daughter, so he went and he gave. He gave his time, he gave his money, and he gathered up some people and he served the city of Dallas. And so I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about this. And the pastor is talking about Jesus who gives, who serves, who sacrifices. And I think about 68 gallons of blood. And I think about, does Jack have any say into who gets that blood? But he gives. He gives. And I think about Caesar. I think about Carla's dad, Caesar. I think about how I've never been down there. And I've never seen the kind of ministry he does. You heard about it a few weeks ago. And I think about Caesar in the morning loading up groceries. And I think about Caesar walking across the border. I think about Caesar getting harassed by people on the border. I think about Caesar lugging groceries into a town that is in need of healing. I think about him at the end of the day coming back with an empty bag of groceries. I think about him sometimes coming back without any shoes on because one of these prostitutes needed shoes, so he gives his shoes. 
And I'm thinking about these men and these women that are giving, that have caught this vision of Jesus. And I'm thinking then about this conviction. I'm thinking about Uncle Jack. I'm thinking about Caesar. But always thinking about our servant king who didn't discriminate. So we look the rest of our conviction. What does this look like? If we found that all this mess is inappropriate because it doesn't look anything like Jesus, what do we do then? Well, we are committed to exploring ways of being good news to the poor. Exploring ways of being good news to the poor, powerless and persecuted. Notice he didn't say bring. The Anabaptist Network didn't say bring. It says being good news to the poor. So when I think about then, what does it mean to be good news to the poor? And we'll hit that last part here in a little bit. What does it mean to be good news to the poor, the powerless, the persecuted? What does it mean when we have this vision of Jesus, we have this vision of the servant king, we follow this Jesus? What does that look like? Well, let's hear from Jesus. I told you we weren't going to camp out in Matthew 20. Let's look real quick at Luke chapter 4. We're going to spend the last few moments looking at what Jesus has to say about bringing good news to the poor and being good news to the poor. So let's look at Luke chapter 4. Jesus has been baptized. And Luke tells us he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. Luke, has been, Luke tells us that Jesus has been tempted by Satan, who has shown him all the kingdoms of the world, said, come, rule like this, bow down to me. And Jesus returns to his hometown, and we'll look here in verse 16. He comes and he's teaching in their synagogues, their places of worship. And he comes to his hometown, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, you with me? He went into the synagogue as was his custom. Okay? He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. It's common practice. Men in the community would read sections of the scriptures. So unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, stop real quick. We're thinking about what does it mean to be good news to the poor. We're thinking about a vision of the servant King Jesus, and we're a people called to follow servant King Jesus. So what does Jesus think of his mission? So where he reads in the book of Isaiah is in our chapter 61, and he says this. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim, what? Good news to the, what? Poor. At Jesus' baptism, he comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit, it says, descends upon him. And the reason the Holy Spirit has come, in Jesus' mind at this time, reading the scriptures in Isaiah, the reason the Spirit has done this, as it was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, is that he could bring good news to the poor. But that's not all. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What is he coming to give? 
Let's look. He's going to proclaim good news. It's an announcement, like we talked about with the gospel. That is good news. The good news is that God has sent who he said he would send. And he's going to say good news. And he's going to say it to whom? The poor. He has been sent to proclaim freedom for those who are captive. He is going to heal, it says. He's going to give recovery of sight for the blind. He's going to set the oppressed free. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That is certainly a reference in Leviticus chapter 25 of this idea of the year of Jubilee. And it's a year in which the crops are rested and debts are restored and the slate is wiped clean. And what God has promised is no less than a social and economic upheaval. Because when debts are forgiven, society is changed. When blind people who have been marginalized in society receive their sight. They're able to enter back in to function. When the captives are set free, when the poor are told good news, when all they've heard is bad news, all they've been is marginalized, what happens is nothing less than a radical shift. And it looks nothing like the kingdoms of the world. And there's so much here to talk about. But what we need to grasp is this. Jesus has taken it upon himself to be the one that God has promised and to bless the people God has always said he would bless, even when the world wants to ostracize them because of status, because of wealth, because of force. So when he reads this, he doesn't stop there. In verse 20, he rolls up the scroll. He gives it back to the attendant and he sat down. And you just imagine, Luke says, the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. So already they are alerted to the fact that Jesus, who they've begun to hear about, who they've grown up with in this town, when he reads this, there's an awareness that something is up. And so... As everyone's looking on him and he sits down in verse 21, he began saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. If Jesus was a rapper, he would drop the mic and there would be such a thud in that place that everybody would go wild. That's what I see. I don't know if y'all see that. Okay, well, (laughs) go listen to some Hank Williams or whatever you're into, Bruce. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus has taken upon himself the task of manifesting the kingdom of God to the people who have never been welcomed. And he's manifesting this charge to bring good news and gospel where for those who are sitting and listening, who know the scroll of Isaiah, who had read it several chapters before in 52, know that good news means that God is king. And he's saying today, this scripture, with the spirit of the Lord charging me to show forth God's kingdom in word and deed, 
Not just to say good news, but to show good news by restoring blindness, by liberating people who have been oppressed by the kingdoms of this world and the power behind them, the kingdom of darkness. He's liberating people. He's not just saying that, he's showing it. He's going to show it when he drives out unclean spirits. He's going to liberate people. He's going to show it. He's going to say it. In verse 22, all these people staring at him, hearing that mic feedback on the ground, all spoke well of him and were amazed at his gracious words that came from his lips. Wait, isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Why would they be amazed at such gracious words? Right now, they're, they're kind of flabbergasted and they're amazed. And they're amazed at his gracious words because they're hearing what is God giving and to whom is he giving it to? Because the poor and blind and powerless in our society, surely they're not blessed. Surely favor's not on them. Surely God's jubilee and favor and resetting the clocks and resetting the debts, surely that's not what God is really up to, right? They're amazed at his gracious words because these are God's grace to the wrong people. It sounds really good in theory, but it starts to encroach on my wealth, my status, my power. Can't God be just for the rich? Can't God be just for the healthy whole and righteous? What is Jesus up to? So as they're staring at him, as he's read this, as he said, it's all about me, it's fulfilled here, right now in your hearing, the Spirit of God is with me to do this, to speak it, to show it. He's radically altering their vision of what a king looks like, what God's king looks like. He's doing it in his hometown. So he's perceptive and he says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Doctor, that's great. Why don't you heal yourself? It makes sense. If you're going to do all these good things, man, show us. It's going to echo the servant king who's on the cross saying, you want to save the world? Why don't you start by saving yourself? Surely this is what's in mind. All of these things should begin filling our minds and our hearts, all fixated on the servant king who has come to serve, not to be served. But doesn't it make sense for the physician to heal yourself? Jesus says, well, you will tell me. Well, do here in your hometown what we have heard that you did in Capernaum. Everywhere in the Gospels, we find that word about Jesus begins to spread. Word about his miracles, word about this. And people are going to constantly ask him, show it, prove it, do it. And so here he is in the hometown crowd and they want this kind of miracle that has reached their ears. Heal yourself. Do here what you've done there. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. Man, it's tough to come home and be prophet, king, when you sat there as a little child growing up and playing with these kids and you're reading. It makes sense. Elsewhere we'll find, man, in the Gospel of Mark that 
when he's in his hometown, he can't even heal like he wants to heal. There's such unbelief, such dissension, such issue. So Jesus is a wise man, the wisest man, and he perceives all of this and he speaks before they get a chance to. And he says, I assure you, he's going to point them back to the scriptures and he say, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time. Okay? When the sky was shut for three and a half years, there's no rain, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. What he's got in mind here, if you flip back or make a note in 1 Kings 17, there's this idea and there's this story of Elijah, God's great prophet, coming in this time of famine. He's going to point them back to this, and he's pointing them back to this because why? They were amazed at what God was giving and whom he was giving it to, the poor, the captive, the oppressed, the blind. All of this is the context in which we find him pointing back to Elijah with all the widows in Israel struggling to have food, to care for themselves. Of all the widows, Elijah comes to one. Verse 26. But he wasn't sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. What that means is he didn't go to any of the right Jewish widows. He went to the wrong non-Jewish widow. And he stayed with her. There's a miraculous food provision for them. And even when her son was sick, her last lifeline, he was healed because the God of Israel has bigger plans for the world. So Jesus then gives him another example from the scriptures. This time, it's going to be in 2 Kings 5. Elisha, who came after Elijah as a prophet, there were many in Israel with leprosy. There's many widows, there's many with lepers, with leprosy. In the time of Elisha the prophet, Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. Again, hear this. What is God giving? To whom is God giving it? It's not only not to all the lepers in Israel at this time in this place with Elisha. It is to Naaman the Syrian, who is not just a Syrian, not just a non-Jew. He was a commander of an army against God's people. He was not on God's team. He was a commander of this army. But he gets word from a little servant girl from Israel about this guy named Elijah who can do something about his leprosy. And Elijah tells him something crazy. He says, man, go dunk yourself seven times in the Jordan River. And he even says something like, uh, man, there's all these beautiful rivers in Damascus. Why can't I just do that? This is ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. But he does. He's cleansed and he says, surely God is true, the God of Israel. Surely this is God. But the point Jesus is making is that God has been about blessing whom he will bless, serving whom he will serve, even the poor, even the powerless, and also even the people who, well, you're not God's people. God is about blessing the world. God is about serving. God is about welcoming those who would repent and turn from their way and he will rescue them from this kingdom. And this is the king, Jesus, who is going to do it. 
because the Spirit of the Lord is on him, to proclaim good news and gospel that God of Israel reigns through King Jesus and he is inviting people to submit to his gracious rule and reign in their lives. And so when we see that Jesus not only says these things, he not only backs it up with the fact that God has somehow in some way, strangely, always in many ways, not only been affiliated with his people Israel, whom he is faithful to, but he is also taking on the case for the widow, taking on the case for the poor, taking on the case for the strangers. In the Psalms, I'm thinking of Psalm 146 off the top of my head. I'm thinking of places where he's speaking through the prophets saying, take care of these people because God desires to take care of them. God loves his people Israel, and God also loves the people of the world because Jesus, God's king who comes from Israel, comes not only to restore Israel, but to redeem the world through Israel. And so what happens then? Jesus, so empowered and anointed by the Spirit to preach and teach God's kingdom and then to manifest God's kingdom, he's going to do it by healing and welcoming those who had never been welcomed. And then by now you're swirling images of Jesus talking to the woman at the well, not saying, you know, he, he, he's, he's confident, he's telling her in the middle of the day, they're talking about worship, and then he calls her to accept living water. And she was such the wrong person. She was such the wrong woman. And he's calling her. And he's calling Zacchaeus. He's calling thieves and sinners. And what he's calling them to is not a longer life of sin, but to turn from that and to be accepted and to accept God's life in the kingdom through Jesus. And so how are the people going to respond to this? How are the people responding when Jesus is saying, this is what I'm up to. I want to manifest God's kingdom by inviting sinners to turn from their ways and get on board with me because God reigns and he's indiscriminately inviting sinners into the kingdom provided they turn and repent. Verse 28, all the people of his hometown in the synagogue were what? What does yours say? Filled with wrath. Mine says furious when they heard this. They got up and they drove Jesus out of the town and they took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built. It's funny that Satan did something very similar not long before this. They were doing this in order to throw him off the cliff. They were so full of rage. But... He walked right through the crowd and went on his way. When we catch the vision of God coming to give to the poor, to give to the powerless, to give to the oppressed, to give to all the people who shouldn't receive, not to look like the kingdom of the world, not to look like Munster, to grab all that we have for ourselves, but to give because we are called to bless those, to serve like Jesus says, to follow him, to do likewise like he says in John 13. We're called to manifest the kingdom by inviting the world to come and submit to his gracious rule. 
But if you're the people that are wealthy, if you're the people that have the status, if you're the people that are the ones with the sword and the force, you want to hold on to this and you won't take kindly. And even now, at the very outset in Jesus' hometown, you can expect to run afoul of the powers in place and the power of the oppressor. Which leads us to the final bit of our conviction for if we do this, if we give at cost of ourself to exalt other, if we give to all the wrong people, we must be aware that such discipleship may attract opposition, resulting in suffering and sometimes ultimately martyrdom. In the story of the Anabaptists, after that incident, where they were colluded with power, where they were colluded with status and wealth, and they were trying to forcefully bring in the kingdom of God, what happens was more suffering and persecution, but it's from a people who had been suffering, had been persecuted. We learn from the Anabaptists that to follow Jesus and to invite people to pledge their allegiance to Jesus will provide opposition. And we don't know a whole lot about that in the West. In fact, we may not know anything about that in the West. But what we do is we draw on the streams of those who've been persecuted, like we've talked about in the last few weeks, who were trying to follow Jesus, to seek Jesus, to serve like Jesus, and we find that it costs them their lives, and we unite with the Christians in the hard parts of the world, and maybe through this conviction, through this vision of the servant king, through this mission of the king to be good news, to bless, to teach, to welcome, to show, to give food, to do these things that Jesus did in his life and ministry, we know, and maybe we can have solidarity with those people who are doing these things where the powers that be kill them, persecute them, take their life. And so, what that means for us in the West, who it may not cost our lives right now, what it means at the very least is to get this vision of Jesus, the servant king, to serve and to put others at cost of ourselves, to put others before ourselves. And we need to begin as a church continually thinking about ways in which we can be good news to the poor. As I've thought about this week, I wonder where Jesus would be if he was walking the streets of Dallas today. In physical body, where would he be? Who would he be talking to? How would he be calling people to repent and to follow him? How might we, with Jesus, go and do likewise? How can you, in your missional community, with the thoughts and visions that God is giving you and sorting out through you, how can you be good news to the poor? How can you proclaim good news? How can you proclaim release to people oppressed by drugs? people oppressed in relationships, people oppressed by anxiety, people oppressed. How can you come and serve? How can you give your shoes, give your groceries, give your time, give your money to follow Jesus, the servant king? This, I hope, is all review for you tonight. This, I hope, is a review and a renewal of the vision of Jesus who gives, who gives, who gives, not takes. This is the vision of Jesus who serves by washing feet. There's no power there. There's no wealth there. There's no status there. And that's why it's inappropriate for us 
to look past these people and to follow the kingdom of this world when we should be following Christ, our servant king. And so I'm excited as we go. I'm tired now (laughs) as I stand right here. But I want you to know that I'm excited. I want you to know that I really do believe that this church is entering into a season where God is calling us and will call us to explore new concrete ways in which we can partner with others, in which we can examine our own hearts and minds and be free to follow Jesus where Jesus would go, to eat with the people whom Jesus would eat with, to welcome those he would welcome. Not simply saying it's okay to persist in this way, but calling them to repentance and renewal and saying there's a better way. There's life with God through Jesus Christ the King, and it's even for you because it was even for me. So I'm excited about a season in which we're going to begin exploring things. We're going to be looking, we're going to be as missional communities continuing to bless and serve. And so what this conviction is, what all of these convictions are, are the theology, the ways in which we're thinking and praying and learning from streams of faith. We're learning how it can inform the way we already believe, the way we already belong, the way we already bless. And may we be a people who manifest God's kingdom for all through service, indiscriminately. May you in these moments as we take the bread and wine, maybe you need to think about that person who you are discriminating your love and your service toward. Maybe there is repentance now to follow Jesus and wash somebody's feet.